Plan your work and work your plan. For many athletes, words like these are scripture. Permanent signposts lining the long road to success. The very act of pursuing a career in sports gives a sense of control, a sense of safety. Just stick to the plan. Good things will follow. That is until life hits you. The kind of life that happens when you're making other plans. Devastating setbacks, seemingly mundane moments, when things change unexpectedly and catch you without looking. Then the first question becomes, what's your next play? From the Players' Tribune, I'm former National Hockey League goaltender Corey Hirsch. And I'm psychiatrist Dr. Diane McIntosh. Welcome to Blindsided. Mental health, sports, and life. This episode contains content that may be difficult to hear. Please check the show notes for more information. Listener discretion is advised. Hi-Vee, shop Hy-Vee, where there's a helpful smile in every aisle. The deal is that every night they would assign us to an aisle and you know somebody would drop off a bunch of boxes in the aisle and we would stock the shelves. So when somebody came down the aisle, it looked like it was 100% full. And all they had to do was look and they could see what brand they wanted or what kind they wanted. And so we would have to face our aisle at the end of every night. And I remember telling myself, okay, I am not leaving this store until I have the best aisle in this store. I'm going to have the cleanest aisle in this store. It's going to look the most pristine. And I know the first person that comes in at 5 a.m. in the morning, they're not going to notice. They're not going to care. But it mattered to me that my aisle was excellent. And again, it was a little thing in a circumstance that I didn't want to be in, but it helped to shape my mindset to go, no matter whether I'm playing in the NFL or working in a grocery store, this is how I'm going to do everything. On this episode of Blindsided, we welcome Kurt Warner. Kurt is a former National Football League quarterback. He's a Super Bowl champion with the St. Louis Rams, and in 2017, Kurt was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But before all that, before the trip to Canton, before the 32,000 passing yards, before the greatest show on turf, he stocked shelves at a local Hy-Vee grocery store in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And what he did in that store is the key to understanding how he transformed from an undrafted free agent into a football legend. And as someone with mental health issues, I found it extremely powerful to hear. Here's Kurt Warner. On Blindsided. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in your house. What was your early life like? Uh, life was pretty simple. You know, my parents actually got divorced when, when I was very young, three, four years old. I just have one brother. And so it was uh, basically myself, my brother, and my mom. Then we would see my dad occasionally here and there. And then over the years, relationship became, you know, better. And and we've got a great relationship now. He's a great grandpa now. We spent a lot of time together. But early years was very simple. We didn't have a whole lot, but we didn't need a whole lot. And uh, we just kind of gravitated around family. For me personally, gravitated a lot to sports, whatever sports that was. I mean, obviously, I ended up playing football, but, but I did everything. It's easy to buy a ball to create some sort of game. And that was really my pastime. 
whatever season it was, I was playing sports. And that was kind of my getaway and my love. And um, like I said, it was me and my brother against the world. And then uh, mom took care of us and uh, she would work two to three jobs to make ends meet and give us what we needed. But overall, middle class, simple lifestyle growing up. Your dad wasn't around a whole lot, it sounds like, early on. So who were your most important influences from a male perspective? Who were the men in your life that you remember helped to form you into the young man you became? You know, it was probably more coaches than it was anything. Spent a lot of time playing sports and, um, you know, certain teams that I was on, I was kind of in a certain system, so would have the same coaches year in and year out. Um, and so individuals that really kind of shaped me early on were in those roles more than anything. Uh, of course, my mom along the way, you know, would have different people that she was dating and she ended up getting remarried. And so, you know, we had some of those influences as well. But I think in the early stages when um, I wasn't seeing my dad quite as much, uh, we didn't have that, that strong connection. It was more coaches. And then I would say probably, you know, friends, fathers, you had a number of close friends. And so we'd spend a lot of time with my friends, get to know their families. And, you know, they, then again, I don't want to say take me in because it wasn't like, you know, I didn't have a family, but, you know, we spent a lot of time with them. And so would have an opportunity to kind of glean some things from those father figures in their lives and and the time we spent together. Do you think that had a, a positive impact, a negative impact? How do you view not having that presence early on? You know, how I've always looked at it over the years, because you always sit back and wonder, now that I have seven children, you sit back and wonder, okay, how did you become the father that you are? And, you know, I, I think whether your past has been good or bad, or whether your relationship with your father has been good or bad, I think we learn from our experiences, regardless of what that is. And so, you know, through my relationship with my dad over the years, I know there's been a lot of things that I've taken from him and I, and I want to apply to being a father. And I know there's other things that I missed out on that I would take and go, okay, when I become a father, these are things that I want to do because I didn't have them. You know, and again, when you watch a friend and their father and their relationship and those kinds of things, definitely will shape who we want to be. So without a question, whoever those people were, whether it was coaches or fathers of friends, or even in my relationship and, you know, what, what my situation looked like growing up, I think I took positives and negatives from a lot of different things. And when you don't have a father, I think you're probably much more conscious of that figure of, of those people you hang on to, you know, the words or the actions of those males that, that you are around. And it ultimately shaped who I was to this day. And so, you know, again, it's, it's such a hard thing to say is, you know, when you don't have something or you struggle through something to see how that shaped you and shaped you in a positive way. But I definitely think, you know, some of the things that I missed out on helped to shape me and, and become a better father as I've just tried to make sure that my kids have everything that, that I felt like I missed growing up. You had mentioned, you know, the guy that you were then, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you were back then. How would your brother or your mom describe young Kurt growing up? Um, I think they would just describe me, uh, again, very simple, uh, very dedicated to whatever I did, you know, and again, specifically, I would say it was more towards sports because that was what I was good at. That's what I 
invested a lot of time in, but I was very committed to it from a very early age. I think they would say that even though I was young at the time, that I was I was based on my character, that I was a good kid, never got in trouble, never, you know, tried to really push the envelope. For me, it was just, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to be, what the expectation was within my household. And I lived up to that. Nothing over the top, you know, not not necessarily a great student, not necessarily, you know, a kid that went above and beyond in those regards. But I think they would just simply say, hey, he was a good kid. Uh, that did the right things and the things that he wanted to be involved in. He was very committed and dedicated to those and worked really hard to accomplish the things that he wanted to accomplish. So you've got seven kids. So I know I, I only have two. I definitely know that you are aware that even if you hope that your kids are good kids all the time, they pop out of the womb and they're their own person and they each have a different personality, temperament, that whole thing. What was it about you that made you a good kid, do you think? Because it's not, you have those expectations, I'm, I'm sure, of behavior at home and how you expect your children to treat you and, and your wife. But there's something about you that makes you a good guy and a good kid. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if I can put my finger on what exactly that was. I think I was very grateful. Uh, you know, when I think about my upbringing and my mom and the way that she worked hard to give us the things that we wanted. When I wanted to, to play on a on a basketball team and I needed money for shoes or I needed money for a jersey or I needed money to travel somewhere, what you know, I just know that she worked really, really hard to provide me with those things. And for me, it was very simple to go, okay, I understand how hard she's working to do these things for me. That on the flip side, when she asked me to do something, I'm gonna do those things for her. And so I didn't want to be that burden. I didn't want to step out. I had, I, you know, I was a kid that was to whatever degree was, was popular, had friends, didn't have to, to act out to try to get attention. You know, all those things were accounted for. So for me, it was pretty simple. My mom asked me to do and be someone when I asked her to help me in, in certain regards. Uh, she went out of her way to do that for me. Grew up in the church, went to a Catholic school. I think some of that uh, had a great impact on me as well, you know, just learning about faith and learning about Jesus and, and and kind of the expectation within the faith of acting a certain way and being a certain kind of person and being a person of character, I think uh, also influenced me in that regard. But um, but it was very simple for me. Uh, as long as I could do and, and have the things that I wanted, to me, that the flip side was do and be the person that other people want you to be or that you want to be. And, and there's no reason to have to, to stray from that. And so that to me was, again, as simple as I think our life was. I've always learned that you need one stable parent. And Kurt, that, that sounds like your mom. Did you ever see her struggle or was she always just a really strong um, woman that was, it sounds like she was incredible. She, I mean, really, it, it sounds like she really, she really was. But did you ever see her struggle at all with that as far as a parent? No, no doubt. I saw struggles all the time, whether it was just the burden of having to raise two kids. And that was, you know, the two and three jobs at a time and going from one job to the other. And, you know, the times having to tell us no, because she couldn't afford this or couldn't do that. Those kind of struggles. I saw struggles, you know, just relationally, uh, a number of different boyfriends. And, and, you know, we talk about it all the time and, and how ironic it is. And maybe it's not ironic at the end of the day. I, 
probably go into that once I talk about it, but uh, she was a mom of two kids and the struggle of trying to date uh, and have a relationship when, you know, men were coming into a relationship where you already had two kids and the two kids were the focal point. I would ultimately marry a woman who had two kids when we met. And so, uh, you know, understanding that relationship and what that meant and the burden and struggle that was, you know, for my mom, but through all of those struggles, my brother and I were at the heart of it. They were at the center of it. She loved us and it was all about us and it was doing whatever she had to do and going through those struggles to try to provide and be the best mom and give us the best, uh, you know, upbringing we could have. So yes, they were in the midst and we saw them quite often, you know, and I think at times you, you feel like you're part of that burden, but ultimately when you become a parent and you understand it, you get it. You're like, I get it. You know, you would do anything and go out of your way to, uh, uh, to help your kids accomplish anything that they want to accomplish. And that was my mom's goal. And in that goal would lead to numerous struggles to not always be able to live up to, you know, what she wanted to do or be or provide for my brother and I. Can you talk a little bit about your your journey as an athlete? And it, you said you had a simple life and you just wanted to play with a ball, but your first inklings that, or other people's inklings that, you, you've got something special going on there. I can't remember a time where I didn't feel like that. You know, it was one of those things where, again, when you don't have a whole lot, I think you gravitate to the things that either you feel you're good at or people tell you you're good at. And so for as long as I can remember, people basically told me, you're really good at sports. You know, it's really the thing that, that defined me for most of my life was I knew you put a ball in my hand I could separate myself or I could stand out, you know, and that would be the case for me really from, from early stages when I started playing all the way through high school, where that part of things wasn't a struggle for me. That was the place I felt at home. That was where I felt most comfortable. That's where I felt I fit in or I could excel or stand out more than any other place in my life. So, I mean, I'll, for me, that's where I got my self-esteem was from. I always didn't feel good about myself as the person, but everybody always told me I was good at hockey. And that's where I got all my self-esteem from, right? So it's, I don't know if you felt the same way away from the game. So th this is a, a double question I'm going to ask you. So there's that, and if you ever felt that, and then there's the other part of it. Do you think your children feel that? Their dad was a, a Hall of Fame quarterback. Like, do they feel that as well? Do they feel that pressure? But yeah, first and foremost, that's where I got my self-esteem from. I, I mean, I think I definitely got a lot of self-esteem from that because I was good at it. But I don't think that it was all from that. You know, I had people that I was around. I mean, everybody around me, other parents. I mean, I knew I was a good kid. I knew I, I you know, I, I was a kid of character and that people didn't look at me like, you know, he doesn't really have anything except sports. Now, I mean, I, I felt like, I mean, I had, you know, good self-esteem both on and off the court or on and off the field, that wasn't necessarily the case where I just didn't have self-esteem and then got on the court and, and, and felt like I changed. But on the flip side, I would say, yes, I think my kids know that, you know, I'm a Hall of Famer and they understand the level in which I achieved in, you know, in my field. And I do think that's a, an area of pressure. And I think it's an area of pressure in a couple of ways. And so it wasn't just what I did on the field, but it was also who I was off the field. You know, there was a certain character that kind of followed me. Um, you know, I 
a Christian guy, very outspoken about my faith. And so that was something that I feel like my kids kind of felt like, okay, there's a pressure to live up to who dad is or what the persona of dad is. There is some pressure that my kids have placed on themselves from simply looking at it from their perspective or from the outside, I'll say, looking in. I don't feel like my wife and I have ever pressured our kids to have to achieve or have to accomplish or have to, you know, to want to be this or that. But without a doubt that, uh, you know, I see that influence on my kids going, okay, dad did this and he worked this hard and he was committed to that. You know, we need to be committed as well. Or he wants us to be committed to our craft as well. And yeah, there's definitely a part of me that says, whatever you do, just be great at it. You know, just commit to it. Uh, But never from the sense of like, oh my gosh, you got to be a pro athlete if you're going to play sports. You got to be this if you're going to do that. But yeah, it's been mentioned numerous times. And I know my kids feel that weight, at least to some degree. You do certainly describe quite an idyllic childhood for someone who came from a a divorce. and, And so I'm really happy for you about that. I wonder how your success in sports impacted your relationship with your brother, good or bad? You know, I think there were positives and negatives uh, because, you know, I think in a lot of families, you have certain kids that are good at this and other kids that are good at that. You know, when I was growing up, I felt like my brother was the smart one and I was the athletic one. And that just kind of you know, we talk about self-esteem and Corey talking about the self-esteem. And and I think that was one of the things is that I wasn't always the smartest one. I wasn't really committed to, to school and that sort of thing. But I got my self-esteem because I was good at that. My brother, as much as he always wanted to be an athlete, just never measured up in most situations. But, you know, he was very, very smart and, and he was able to kind of get, you know, his, you know, his self-esteem and, and direction from from what he did academically. Um, but, you know, that's definitely can be a struggle. I mean, I, I remember one time, you know, again, I, I would play every sport. And I remember at one point um, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to take up golf because my brother had started golfing. And I remember my mom saying, no, you're not going to golf. And I'm like, what do you mean, mom? And she's like, that's going to be your brother's thing. OK, because everything else he's tried to do, <laughs> you just overshadow him. So uh. we're not going to have you golf. You just do the things that you're good at and we'll let him have have golf. And I, and I completely understood that because, you know, there was a part of him that wanted to be an athlete uh, and wanted to succeed. And, you know, he tried and, and he went out for the teams and he was the one that was always getting cut. I was the one that was always making it. I was the one that was always the star on my team and he just wanted to have a part in it. So uh, I think there was some tension and some struggles there and, and I'm sure some some jealousy to some degree with that. But I think like with everything, that kind of fades away as time goes by. And, you know, the further and further I went, the more and more success I had, um, you know, he he became my biggest fan uh, as opposed to being jealous of that stuff. But it was definitely tough, uh, you know, going through high school in those early stages um, because it was like he was invisible on a court if, if I was playing with him because I was the one that was good in that area. Um, and, and I felt the same way academically, you know, when they would talk about the smart kids and they would talk about him, you know, I would kind of shrink in the corner, like, wish I could be, you know, the smart kid too. But, uh, but I always looked at it like, but I got my thing. He's got his thing. I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, cause again, I didn't feel like I was missing everything. I had something to gravitate to 
give me self-esteem and feel really good about myself in. Diane, when Kurt was a child, he found his gift, his talent. How important is that for a kid for mental health? I think it's really quite important for kids to find out what they're really passionate about. And as parents or as as someone who's really having a positive influence in a child's life, helping them to find their passion, allowing them to pursue their interest is really important for their overall well-being, for their socialization, for their success in adult life. But it's also important to try to keep the door open to other opportunities, to have sort of a breadth of experiences. So you might be a great athlete, and everything else goes by the wayside, but maybe it's an opportunity also, or an opportunity comes up as well, to explore your artistic side or another sport that you could be good at. And I think a lot of the great athletes that we've spoken to, they did a little across the board. Yeah, so we know that a child's brain is still developing. What would that do for their own personal development? One of the things we know about being involved in team sports or athletics at that higher level is that it really does help to build life skills, right? Resilience, your ability to become a more social person, to have productive relationships. We know athletics are critically important for life success. There's a real value to that. Some people have a unique, an an exceptional gift, whether it's athletics or academics, As parents, you want to support that as much as possible, but not everyone has that exceptional gift. And so while we talk to a lot of exceptional people, there is still such an important value in encouraging kids to be part of athletics, to find what is really passionate or interesting for them, if it's not athletics, something else, and to have a breadth of experience because we know that the more kids are involved in things like that, the healthier they are as adults. And and what does it mean to be part of a team and being able to work with with others, learning, you know, life skills for when they get older. I think you're the best person in this conversation to answer that question, Corey. <laughs> what did it mean for you? Well, it just it allowed me to work with other people, and I had to learn very quickly. When you get moved from team to team, or you know, changing schools, it allows you to make friends really quickly, which is very important for your development. I was able to walk into a room and feel comfortable and be able to do the best job I could do. Um, And when you can do that, it's just, it's like whether it's a job or whether you're in a computer club, whatever it is, whatever your passion is, it doesn't have to be sports. It can be art. It can be ballet, dancing. It can be anything, but it just teaches you to be part of a group, part of a team, and the ability to make friends quickly so that you can develop yourself and develop those skills for life. They are life skills. But what happens if they can't find their passion, if they can't find what they love, if they're just kind of a a bit of a social outcast, is there anything that can help them get into something that belongs and and builds self-esteem? I think self-esteem is so important. Well, I think it's why it's so important for parents to be engaged in what their kids are doing, knowing if they're really struggling to find their path and opening up opportunities for them. And that, you know, there are limits with with some families as to income, for instance, or access to, to programs. Sometimes you have to be quite creative, but there's something for everyone out there. Maybe you're not an athlete, but you're into improv. 
helping your child to find what really ignites that passion and helps them to engage on a different level than just at school with other kids, that will pay dividends in the long run. Well, and if you don't like one thing, try another. Just because one thing didn't work, like say you go play soccer or football or if those aren't for you, keep trying. Kurt's story isn't without struggle. He found himself in a situation a lot of professional athletes experience. You know, all the way through high school, as I think with most professional athletes, um, life's pretty good. You know, you're the you're the star of the team. You're the best of the best. You know, and then beyond there is where the struggle kind of started. Is I didn't get many scholarship offers. I uh, actually just got one partial scholarship offer. Went to college. Ended up sitting on the bench for four years. Finally, did get to play my senior year. Did parlay that into an opportunity in the NFL, got cut my first time out. From there, tried to figure out a way to get back into the league, couldn't figure it out, worked in a grocery store for a period of time, ended up playing arena football, which is a smaller league, you know, a football that not a lot of people know and understand, but played in the arena league for three years, then ended up going over to Europe to play for a year before finally at the age of uh, 27, 28, getting my opportunity to get back into the NFL. So there was a period there from from high school till I was 27, where it was just kind of a journey and trying to figure out how to accomplish my dream, how to get back there, how to navigate through some things that I had never faced before being the, the superstar up to this point, everything came easy and, you know, everything, you know, kind of went through Kurt. And now all of a sudden, I'm struggling and fighting to just get on a field and to get an opportunity and, and, and to play the game that I loved. And so there were a lot of struggles in there, both mentally, uh, or I should say mostly mentally, trying to figure out why and trying to figure out what I needed to do different and, and trying to navigate through just how life works sometimes is that, you know, sometimes it's, it's not easy. Sometimes, uh, you know, everything that I had known up to that point is like, okay, this has always been easy. Now you're playing with, guys that are the best of the best from all over the place. And you've got to kind of navigate through. And, and I always say you got to have a realistic approach and, and, you know, realistic view of who you are and what's going on and why you're not playing. And, and being able to juggle all of that stuff ultimately would shape me into the person that I am and the player that I became. But it definitely wasn't easy. And it definitely wasn't something that I was used to and I understood until I headed off to college. So Corey's going to ask you a, a lot about your professional experience and especially your highs, but I'm going to ask you about, well, I would say that you demonstrated incredible resilience. And my guess is that that resilience came from a loving, supportive home, your faith, many reasons why. But you were stocking shelves for minimum wage or maybe even less. You were you were living in a basement. You were the, the big man on campus who ended up working really in jobs that were not aspirationally where you wanted to go. Can you talk about getting through that, about what you relied on to be able to endure those challenging times? Well, I think there's a number of things. I think, as you said, it's people to support you, people that love you uh, along the way that can encourage you when things aren't going your way. You know, when I'm sitting on the bench in college, uh, I remember the conversations with my mom when I wanted to quit. And my mom's like, you're not a quitter. 
I mean, you're not just going to give up. You, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you committed to this. You're going to see it through, and, and then we'll work through whatever happens after that. You know, you're not just going to take off and run when things get tough. And, and I'm sure a lot of that came from uh, moments when she wanted to turn and run and, and and get away from what she was dealing with and the struggles and, and the situation she was in. You know, and, and so yeah, it was it was about people around me. You know, as I went and moved on later and uh, had gotten married or, or, you know, started dating my wife. Uh, it was that support of her, you know, kind of encouraging me and helping me through and sometimes being a shoulder to cry on when I'm sitting here going, why, why me? Why, why do I have to go through this? And we talked a little bit earlier about that self-esteem. I think I had great self-esteem. So there was never a time when I doubted myself, never a time when I said, I can't do this. You're not good enough at this. For me, it was more of the journey of, why am I not getting the opportunity? You know, what, what is it that, that I'm either not doing or that they're not seeing that's not giving me the opportunity? But it was never that I felt and wavered in what I could accomplish. So, you know, we kind of just mentioned some of the things that, that I went through. And so when people hear my story, that's kind of what they gravitate to. Man, this is the guy that sat for four years in college and then got cut by his first NFL team, then worked in a grocery store and then had to play in all these other leagues before getting another chance. When I looked at my journey, I would always say, okay, I played one year in college and I was the best player in our conference that year. I won an award for the, you know, being the player of the year in our conference. I played in arena football for three years and was voted the best quarterback in the league for three years and went to two championship games in three years. Went to Europe, was the best quarterback. So in my mind, it was like every time I have a ball in my hands, I'm still really good. You know, there was never a time when, a ball was in my hands and somebody could go, see, that's why you're not playing because you were really bad that year. I never had that. <laughs> so so I never wavered in, in my faith in who I was or what I was as a player. The struggle for me was the why. Why am I not getting this opportunity and what am I missing and some of those things. But but I learned a lot along the way. And, you know, I remember being in college and you know, without a question in my mind, and I think a lot of other people's minds, that I was more talented than the guy that was playing in front of me. But for whatever reason, I couldn't get on the field. And, you know, partly because the guy in front of me was successful and he won, even though he wasn't as talented, he was a good leader. And I remember asking a friend of mine to go ask the coaches what I'm missing. what What's wrong? You know, because what I see, I, I should be out there, but I'm not out there. So what is it that you're seeing? And And I'll never forget when he came back to me, and he told me, he said, coaches said, you're not very good in practice. And I remember thinking kind of like Allen Iverson, if you guys ever oh, heard his man. rant, you know, like, are we talking about practice? Like, when I play in games, I'm really good. But are we talking about, you know, saying I'm not good enough in practice? <laughs> and that's kind of how I felt in my mind was, this is ridiculous that I'm not good in practice. But the more I started to think about it, the more I started to realize, you know, 99% of the impression that we make on other people is in practice. Like, you know, I know the NHL, you guys play more games than we do, but like in football, in college, you play 11 games, 11 days a year, you get a chance to play a game. You know, in the NFL, 16 times a year, you get a chance to play a game. So there's not opportunity to go and play games and show people who you are. They want to see who you are every day. They want to see who you are in practice. They want to see how you show up. So we know what you do in practice will be what you do between, you know, underneath the lights, because we don't have an opportunity to just experiment for two games and see if you're any good under the lights. Half the season's over. And so that was a huge lesson to be learned for me is just 
because I think about that with my kids as well. You know, you got seven kids now and I can stand up on, you know, my soapbox and lecture my kids, you know, here and there and, and, and all of that. But what I realize is that they're watching what I do every day. They're watching how I treat their siblings. They're watching how I go about my job. They're watching how I love their mom every day, not just in these big moments when everything's great. They're watching me in practice. And that's what shapes their viewpoint of me. And so a great lesson that I learned that I would take with me uh, as I moved on and you know went into the NFL and started playing again, that practice became really, really important to me. I wanted to show people every day what they could expect from me where I didn't really have that mentality before that and specifically in college because I was always the good athlete. So to me, it's like, oh, the best athlete, you'll play. And that stuff didn't really matter as much. I came to realize how important that was. You know, with that, I, I working in a grocery store. I remember I went from being in training camp with the Green Bay Packers, you know, so you're this close to accomplishing your dream and you get cut. And now all of a sudden, Two weeks later, I'm working for $5.50 an hour in a grocery store. And I remember walking into that place going, how in the world did I get here? Like, this was never a part of the plan. And then maybe the harder question was, how do I get out of here and get back to where I want to go? Because I don't know what the roadmap is to go from stocking shelves at a grocery store to the NFL. You know, it's one thing to go from college, even if you're sitting on the bench, to go, okay, the step is I'm going to play and then I'll, I'll get drafted and then I'll go. You're working in a grocery store. You're like, there is no blueprint for how to do this. And so the first couple of days is really just kind of wallowing in your own self-pity and, you know, why me and all of that stuff. And then I remember saying to myself, okay, I don't want to be here, but this is where I'm at. So what could you possibly do while stocking shelves at a grocery store that could ultimately help you in the long run to accomplish your goals. And so when I was stocking shelves, I mean, obviously the, the deal is that every night they would assign us to an aisle and, you know, somebody would drop off a bunch of boxes in the aisle and we would stock the shelves, you know, when everybody else is sleeping. So the shelves would be stocked when they came back the next day. And then at the end of the night, our job was to face our aisle. So if you've never worked in a grocery store, you probably have no idea what that means. But uh, so facing the aisle was basically where we didn't have product that was completely full. Our job was to pull all the product we did have to the front of the aisle and to line up the labels of like the, you know, the cans or, or the baby food. So when somebody came down the aisle, it looked like it was 100% full and all they had to do was look and they could see what brand they wanted or what kind they wanted. And so we would have to face our aisle at the end of every night. And I remember telling myself, okay, I am not leaving this store until I have the best aisle in this store. I'm going to have the cleanest aisle in this store. It's going to look the most pristine. And I know the first person that comes in at 5 a.m. in the morning, they're not going to notice. They're not going to care. But it mattered to me that my aisle was excellent. My aisle was the best that it could be before I went home every single night. And again, it was a little thing in a circumstance that I didn't want to be in, but it helped to shape my mindset to go, this is how I'm going to do everything. No matter whether I'm playing in the NFL or working in a grocery store, I'm going to be great at whatever it is that I do. And so it was a little thing that helped to shape my mindset even to this day. I don't have a lot of hobbies. There's not a lot of things that I do because everything I do, I want to be great at it. I'm going to commit to it and I want to be great and I want to be excellent at it. And it's something that I want to inspire my kids to want to be, that whatever they choose to do, 
Uh, you don't have to be great in terms of what you accomplish, but be great in terms of how you approach it and the details by which you do whatever it is that you choose to do and, and chasing your passion. And so as weird as it sounds, those are a couple instances where I learned some tremendous lessons along that journey that for so long I didn't want to be on. You know, I sat there and asked, why me? And don't want to be here. And I wish I could be the other guy. There are certain things that I learned that I think were invaluable in helping me to have the success that I would ultimately have, but more importantly, becoming the person that I always wanted to be. Damn, Diane, I got, I just, I, there's a lot to unpack there. I got to go do some push-ups or some sit-ups or something. What I have found hanging out with elite athletes is they got to win everything. You just told me you needed to win grocery store. That is yep. hilarious. <laughs> but yep. the, the journey that you're describing, and I I, I know there's so much. Well, Diane, depth. before you go there, I, sure. but I think the, the cool thing about athletes too is that I think it's twofold. Of, of course, we're competitive and we want to beat our opponent and we want to beat other people. But I think the internal thing that you see with great athletes or great leaders or great whatever they do was I knew I wasn't going to be judged on that. Nobody was going to come in and give me a medal for having the best face style. I was doing that for me. There was an internal drive in me that said, you're going to have the best aisle, not because you're going to walk down and go, hey, guys, come look at my aisle. It's better than yours simply because there was a drive in me to go, but I want to be the best. That, that's all this is about. Even if nobody ever notices, it's what's driving me internally. And I think that's a unique thing about the greats at anything, that they're not worried about what everybody else is saying. It's simply the drive to want to be the best at whatever they're doing. You are the essence of resilience. This is what I, I need to say to you because, and resilience is a whole bunch of different things, but it's it's coming through adversity and getting stronger. And even your self-talk, the way that you talk to yourself instead of, you know, you're a loser, you're a failure, that self-talk is actually resilience. And some of it sounds like it comes innately, but it's such an incredible gift to share with other people. What I, I need to ask you before, Corey, it's all over to you is, would you change that path? Because man, that was hard in your head, as you said, mentally, but also just being in that grocery store and, and having been so close to where you wanted to go, would you change it looking back now? Well, that's the, that's the beautiful thing is we get the benefit of looking back now and seeing the whole thing. And so, yeah, there was a, a six year period or, or maybe even more where I did spend a lot of time, whether it was in prayer or just self-reflection going, you know, why couldn't I be the guy that played for four years in college and got drafted number one overall and had a great career and everything go my direction? You know, why me? Why, why do I have to be the guy working in the grocery store and, and getting cut and having to, you know, to, to forge this path that nobody else has, has forged? And now when I, I look back and now when I pray and, and, and contemplate, you know, most of my time I'm, I'm asking God, like, why me, God? Like, why did you choose me for this? Why do I get to have this incredible story because, you know, what you ultimately end up at the end of the day realizing is that, you know, I, I always wanted to have a career and a life that was different from everybody else. In my mind, that difference was, man, I'm going to play and I'm going to be Tom Brady. I'm going to play in more Super Bowls and, and, and play greater and be better for longer than everybody else. But I look back now and I go, no, I wouldn't change it. Is that one of the coolest things about my journey is that no one else will ever have this journey. No one else will ever do this like I did it. And 
that to me is a really, really cool thing. And it's a cool thing from the standpoint that I did get to live it and I come out the other side and they're making a movie because obviously I was able to get through and have success. But it's also a cool thing because I think my journey resonates with more people than had I been the number one draft pick and had I had a great career and had I ended up in the Hall of Fame and had I been Tom Brady, I don't think very many people can relate to Tom Brady in that regard. So it's rare and it's unique and it's awesome, but it's a different kind of awesome. What I love about my journey is that, you know, so many people have their supermarket moments, right? So many people have those struggles along the way and and find themselves in circumstances that uh, that they don't want to be in and they have to navigate through and figure out, can they reach the mountaintop or can they fulfill their dreams or can they, you know, find their way out of this? And that to me, when it's all said and done that, you know, in your sports career, it's going to end and it's going to end fairly early, right? I retired when I was 38. Beautiful thing about my story is I can continue to use my story to impact people for another 40 years. Uh, You know, it's a movie that can live forever and will inspire people. And so a long-winded way of saying for a big part of my career, yes, I wish it would have been different. But now when I look back, I say, absolutely not. Uh, I love the fact that my journey will always be something that is unique and something that will set me apart from other people that were just great at what they did. It was the journey that I went through and the struggles that I you know, had to work through and, and being able to persevere and, and have that resolve to be able to work through those things are things that I think will always um, be able to encourage people and inspire people as they're going on their journey, because I think more people's journey are like mine than like, you know, as I said, those that, uh, that everything just kind of plays out perfectly from, uh, from the way they dreamed it from a very young age. When I talk to other high school kids, college kids, uh, young men, masculinity is such a big issue right now and dropping the ego. I'm not sure I could have done that at that age and dropped my ego and, and not played in, in high school football or college football to sit there for three years and then go to Green Bay. And uh, I'll ask you another story about that because I'm sure you have some good ones. But my first NHL training camp was a disaster. <laughs> like, it was embarrassing. Yeah. I, I don't think I made a save. I, I really don't. Um, but you're going through all that and then you have to you have to drop your ego. And I see so many men not be able to do that. How did you accomplish that? I mean, we've gone through a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd look at it as dropping my ego so much as as I always say, is that I, I think key to life is being able to step back and realistically uh, assess who you are and where you're at. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the hardest things is because so often we want to think of ourselves as being greater than we are. You know, we, we can look at that as a player and go, oh, I don't have any faults. I can do everything. And Mm -hmm. we do that and we never become, you know, what we can become without being able to realistically step down and go, you know what? I'm not very good at that. I need to work on that. I need to get better at this. And and I think the same holds true, you know, in life is that I'm always trying to step back in all my relationships and as a father and just going, okay, you know, I want to think that I'm really good at this and, and, you know, I got this down and, and nobody can be a better father or husband than I can. But I think it's always important to be able to step back and go, but where am I missing? And, you know, when my kids talk or when my wife talks, listen to what they're saying. Um, and I think that has been key for me uh, along the way is that I never lost my confidence. I never lost my ego from the standpoint that, man, I wanted to be great and I wanted to compete. And when people would 
challenge me on things. I'd want to puff my chest out and go, well, hold on. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to believe that. But I ultimately think that, you know, just like my college story that, you know, had I just said, ah, practice, whatever, and just walked away and just kind of said, ah, oh, these guys, a bunch of jokers, because they're not looking at what I do in a game. And, you know, they're blaming it on practice. Or I could have said, to, as I said to myself was, holy cow, you know, I'm not making a good enough impression on my teammates and my coaches every single day for them to trust me with what I'm doing. And so, you know, when you say ego, I didn't drop it. I always had it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I would always fight it. And, and I think it was important for me to have it. You know, as I said before, the reason I kept going was that I fully believed in who I was. Yeah, I had a strong ego and, and I was very confident in who I was. And again, I think I was realistic in saying, no one's ever shown me I can't play. So don't waver in that. But with all that being said, people are showing you things that you need to get better at and things that you need to do different. And so in that, you do need to, as your term, drop your ego or be able to wade through your ego to say, there's facts in that. I had a lot of articles written about me over the years, some good, some bad. And there were times that there'd be good articles and I'd read them and I'm like, this is a bunch of BS. Like, it sounds really good and it makes me look really good, but they don't know what they're talking about. And I had to read that instead of going, oh my gosh, look at this, everybody read this. I had to take it and kind of throw in the trash and go, yeah, it's garbage. It sounds good mm-hmm. and I appreciate it, but it's garbage. In the same token, I would have people that would write things that were critical of me. And there were times that I had to read it and go, you know, this is garbage. This is not true. And I don't need to go and defend it. I don't need to go tell people it's not true. I know it's not true. Throw it in the garbage. But there were other times when people would write criticism about me and I'd have to go, dang, that is 100% true. I need to change that. I need to get better at that. And I hated it. You know, like I hate this articles out there and it's saying I need to do this better. But how can I fault this person? Because they're telling the truth. It's true. When I look at it and read it, I've got to look at that and say, there's some truth to that. There's some fact to that. And I can either try to hide my head in the sand or try to argue with it, or I can have a realistic viewpoint and go, yeah, if I don't ever improve on that, this is going to keep happening and I'm not going to get to where I want to go and I'm not going to become as good as I, I want to be. And so I, I think it was a fine balance of always holding on to my ego. So I never lost that self-esteem and that never crushed me, but also being able to step back and wade through my ego to go, but where do I need to improve? Where can I be better? Instead of just thinking, I got all the answers, I'm good enough, because you you know it, we see all kinds of people. We see our kids do it all the time. They want to point the finger, they want to blame someone else for things they're not doing well enough. And it's easy. We could always find a reason and an excuse to go, ah, that, that coach not recognizing my talent or that coach, whatever, or, or my wife is just, we could do that all the time. But the bottom line is until you can step back, you know, from your ego and say, okay, is this true or is this not true? You know, what do I need to take from this or what can I throw in the trash? That to me was something that I was able to do and was very, very important for me on both sides, that there were things I needed to throw away. Otherwise, it would have weighed me down and it would have affected me. And there were other things that I needed to hold on to because had I thrown them away, I would not have gotten to where... Uh, I wanted to be or become the person that I wanted to be, you know, because I was trying to disregard it and, and allowing the ego to overshadow what the realistic, you know, what a realistic assessment of who I was or where I was in my in my life was. Corey, I could tell watching you as 
we listened to Kurt's story, how it seemed to be really meaningful and, and important to you. Why is it so important to you to hear stories like Kurt's? I think he worked extremely hard at his craft, and he tried to perfect everything he did. Now, perfection is hard to, it's hard to get to. But I learned so much from him in the sense that when I was a professional athlete, I relied on my talent. I didn't work hard enough. And I think if I did, if I worked harder, if I went to the gym more, if I did the things that I needed to do to be a professional athlete, I think I would have been a a better player. But the way that Kurt worked and worked, the way that his resilience going over to Europe, coming back, never, ever quitting. But I did learn that elite, elite athletes, they're on another level. They were on another level from me. And I think that that's a difference for Kurt is, is that he believed in himself and it was confidence and it wasn't arrogant confidence. It was direct and he really, really took that to another level. I could see some people listening to Kurt and maybe feeling a little resentful. How is it possible that this guy just faces challenge after challenge after challenge, and he seems to get through them? That whole thing about the grocery aisle, I want to win the grocery aisle. My goodness, he's stocking shelves at a grocery store. And the way he talks about it, it's almost like water off a duck's back. Did you find that annoying? No, I found it inspiring. And the thing that was really, really cool was just, like I said, the way he was so direct, the way he worked, the way he believed in himself, that's hard to do. That is very difficult to do. And just because you're out there and you're listening, not everybody's Kurt Warner. But when you find your passion, I think you can get to that level and really It was just everything he did, he tried to perfect. People want to tear people down like that. It's so interesting. When Wayne Gretzky was a child, people hated him because he was good. And how fair is that? And Taylor Townsend, we had her on. And she said when she was the best as a child, people tried to tear her down. When you're good, people are always trying to bring you down to another level. And that's not right. Respect their talent. Respect how good they are. Respect the work that they've put in to get to that level. It might not seem right, but that's the reality. And I think what Kurt showed is that he didn't really care what other people thought, even what getting drafted or not. (laughs) He didn't seem to so much care about that as to use that to actually drive himself to be even better. In the year 2000, Kurt won a Super Bowl with the St. Louis Rams. He quarterbacked one of the most exciting teams in the history of the National Football League. He credits a lot of his success to his faith. I think my faith has been, you know, critical. And it's been a journey, too. Um, You know, a journey to to really find my faith and figure out what that means. And and, But I think a big part of, of faith and the Christian faith is understanding that we are all flawed, that none of us are perfect. And so to sit back and try to pretend like we are, you know, we're, we're just fooling ourselves into going further and further away from who God wants us to be and, and, you know, and ultimately who I think we want to be if we're really truly following that faith. And so I think that's a, an important realization to find at some point in your life. And, you know, for me, 
football or, or sports in general helped me to understand that because I tell, you know, my, my kids all the time and the kids that I coach, I played a lot of football and I won a lot of games and I played in Super Bowls and I'm in the Hall of Fame. I never once played the perfect game. Not one single time did I play the perfect game. Every game I played, there were flaws, there were mistakes, there were things that I did wrong. And it was important for me to not just gloss over those and pretend like they didn't happen, but to use those to try not to let them happen again. And, and every time to kind of seek out uh, the be- most, you know, the most perfect uh, performance that I could have. And, and I think that's what the Christian faith is all about, is about, you know, doing that, it is seeking perfection, but knowing you're not going to make it. You're going to fall short. And then Taro trying to, to, to get a little bit closer to it and a little bit closer to it. And the only way to do that is to recognize our flaws and then to grow and move forward from them. And so I think my faith was really, really important in allowing me to understand that and understand that I am a flawed person from the get-go. Kurt, I want to ask you, so someone like me, I want to have a, I want to have a stronger faith. Um, I struggle with it. And I do believe in it. I do believe in the universe or God or, or whatever you choose to believe. What would you say to someone like me that wants to have a higher faith, but just like I said, there's something blocking me from having it. I would like to get past that. Well, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say unless I know what's blocking it. But, you know, I have a sense that oftentimes what I believe is, is blocking people from truly finding faith and figuring out what it's all about and, and really finding God is man, is us, that we just screw it up so much. And, you know, whether that's in a church or it's people that profess to be of a certain faith, and then they try to let people know that they're flawless. And that's the problem, is that we don't recognize our flaws often enough. And, you know, and and it even turns me off, is that a man of faith, when I hear people do that, and then they say, but you're wrong, and you're wrong, and you're wrong, and this is wrong, and it's like, who wants to be a part of something like that? You know, too often in faith, we, we draw these lines that say, this is what faith is. It's believing in this over that, or you can be of this sexual orientation or that, or you can go to this church or that. And it's this black and white line. I don't think God ever said that. I think God said, faith is about believing in me that with your flaws, you can still get to where I want you to go. You can still have relationship with me. And you can still have a relationship with everybody else. It's about growing together and it's about loving people at the end of the day. But too often we don't find those people with faith that truly walk by love. God tells us just to love God and love people. Those are the two commandments really at the end of the day. And we can talk about the 10 commandments, but that's really what Jesus said. This is what you're here for. And we don't have enough people that do that. And we got to start finding people and loving people and getting to know people and understanding those differences. That to me is is kind of how I've waded through this whole faith thing. And what's been critical to me is to find people of all different backgrounds and all different beliefs and all different, you know, sexual orientations and, and all of those things and going, come on, let's, let's sit down and, and let's, let's have dinner together. Let's hang out. Let me get to know you and let me fall in love with you for who you are regardless of where I might think you have flaws or where you might think I have flaws, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to just love people. You're such a resilient man. You've had a long, successful marriage. Uh, You have seven children, but it's not without problems, all of it. So being as resilient as you are, 
especially with our kids, you have seven, I have three, and you can have one, by the way. I mean, if you want eight, <laughs> I've got, just take, no, they're I'll take great eight. kids. I love them. But, I love them. <laughs> um, when you see them struggle, and you being such a resilient person, how do you apply that to your children? And ultimately, Diane, this is a question for me, because I suck at relationships. How do you work that with your marriage? Uh, well, I mean, first with the kids, it's, it's not easy. Um, and my wife, uh, one of probably her biggest pet peeves with me is that, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I coach, you know, and I look at parenting very much like that. I think parenting is coaching. It's trying to direct our kids. It's trying to teach them how to live and, and how to love and how to make good decisions and, and how to get to the point where they can be, you know, self, self-dependent or, or being able to to handle everything that comes their way. And so I believe parenting is very much like that. But I also have, you know, kind of a coaching style. And, you know, it's using the things that I went through, the things that I came through, you know, to try to encourage my kids in what they're doing. And, you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, what I, you know, come to realize, whether it's my wife or my kids, is that, you know, sometimes dads just shut up and listen. I don't need you to coach me out of it. I just need you to listen to me. You know, I want to let you know where I'm at and then I'll go and I'll work on it on my own. I don't need you to tell me how to fix it all the time. But that's my style is, you know, because I've been there and because I want to encourage and because I know I needed it when I went through those things, that's what I want to do is here, try this, do that, right? You can work through this or you can, all this stuff. So that's the natural thing for me that I'm kind of learning and trying to get better at being able to step back and go, okay, right now it's just about listening. But, uh, you know, and it's not an easy thing for me, um, you know, because again, all you want is what's best for your kids and you don't want them stuck in whatever. And I don't want to just say, okay, I'll just listen and leave you stuck in this. I want to help you get out of it. I want, you know, I want to help solve those problems. Uh, but ultimately, like I said, parenting is about not doing it for them. It's teaching them how to do it for themselves. Um, and so there's times I got to step back uh, in that regard and do that. You know, when it comes to my marriage, I, I think it's very similar to that. That, you know, I've got to be continually be better at, at hearing and listening and understanding, you know, when, when they need advice, when they need help and when they just need me to be there to be a voice. And my wife was obviously to, to be a voice. She can be a voice and I can just be an ear for her to, uh, you know, to, to share whatever she wants to share and confide in me. And so it's been a long journey and, and you know, we've been married for 24 years and uh, we've had our ups and downs and we've had our struggles, but I'm constantly learning. And I'm also learning that we do life differently, just like my kids all do life differently. It's the job of all of us to, A, understand when somebody else needs something different. But I also think it's our job in that relationship to understand, but that's who they are. And so I've got to be able to accept that instead of saying, oh, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to be you. I don't want you to coach me, right? Well, that's what dad does. And so his heart's good. I understand it. I might not want it at this time, but I have to accept him for who he is. You know, you talk about my wife and my wife is one of those when we get mad, when we have a fight or, you know, we get mad at each other. She doesn't talk to me for a couple of days and I hate it. You know, to me, I'm like, I just, let's talk. Let's get this out. Let's figure it out let's, and move forward. And she's like, nope, I'm going to, I need two days or three days to just simmer down and come to that realization and then go there. And so after 24 years, I can 
every single time we get in a fight, I can go try to talk to her and talk to her and talk to her. And then she just gets more mad, more mad, more mad. Or I can just say, it's who my wife is. I'm going to give her a couple days. Okay. Even though I want to talk right now, I understand who she is. I'm going to give her a couple days. In a couple days, we'll sit down and talk and we'll work this out. And then there's other times where I hope that she does the same thing. Like, I don't want to talk right now, but I'm going to talk because I know you want to talk and let's get this worked out. And so I think we have to have that understanding of both sides is we got to understand what our issues are or who we are and we have to embrace it, but we also have to try to continue to grow and, and do what that other person in the relationship needs. But I think there's, there's also a key part to, you know, from the other side, accepting who someone is and not always saying, well, you can't do it like that. You can't do it like that. You can't, do, you can't parent like that. You can't, no, sometimes it's like, okay, that's what they need. That's who they are. You know, that's a challenge for all of us because again, back to way back when I was talking about it, you know, we all, we all think our way is the best way. We all think we've got all the answers and I've just come to realize that that's not the case is that what worked for me, uh, what got me through is not always going to be the same thing that gets one of my kids through one of their issues as much as I want it to be. And I want it to be that easy. I've got to step back sometimes and go, okay, I'm here. I'm a shoulder for you to cry on. I'm an ear for you to, uh, to, to spout into. And then at the end of the day, just know that I love you and you work through your issues. And if you need me to come coach you, I'll be here to do that. So when I look at, you know, your life, you have an older boy, he's 32, right? That struggles, had a brain injury. Yep. You know, how do you, there's, there's people out there the same, you know, they're in the same boat. What do you, what do you say to them to keep their spirits up, to keep going to through those trials and tribulations? Cause it, it's really not fair, but I also had a friend that told me if you're waiting for fair, you're going to be waiting a long time. Yeah. Yeah. We always you say that to our kids too. Life's not fair, you know, cause we always want, you know, when we hear that you know, life's not fair and just look at our lives and, you know, all of us could, you know, have a million things that we say that this is just not how, you know, it's not, not how we wanted it. Well, so-and-so has this and so-and-so has that. And we always try to flip and go, yeah, but look what you have, you know, look what, you know, you're fortunate too, that life's not fair on our side either, but and not an easy thing. You know, first of all, it's about listening because what we realize is that our journey is not everybody else's journey. And, you know, what we tell our kids oftentimes is that, you know, they can complain about something little and, and we want to just say, well, gosh, you know, don't complain about that because there's other people that don't have this or don't have. And what I've come to realize is that all of our worst things is our worst thing right? I mean, we can always point and go, well, they've got it worse or they've got it worse, but that doesn't help anybody. You know, what you understand is that, you know, when, when your kid's going through something, that's the worst that it can be because your kid's going through that thing. And so, you know, I think one thing for us is always just to, to listen to them and allow them to share their pain and what they're going through and what their struggle is and mm -hmm. go, you know, it's okay. It's okay. We all have a worse thing. We all have uh, you know, something that, you know, that we think is going to take us out. And then I think the second part of it, you know, in regards to my 32 year old son is to share hope and to go, you know, we, we went through that too. And, and here's where we're at today, you know, whether it's our journey and, and, you know, what my wife went through, you know, my wife, single mom of two, she lost her parents in a tornado, you know, the injury to, to our son, uh, obviously my journey, all those different things is go, but, but there's hope because here's where we're at today. And I think that's the biggest thing for us is I want to hear everybody's story. I don't want to take anything away from their story or their pain or their struggle. And then you want to try to generate hope. 
and give hope moving forward. And, you know, just in, in our short relationship together, you've been able to do that for me with my other, you know, kids and what they're dealing with and some of the struggles that they have, because there's times that, that I feel like it's going to take me out and that it can't get any worse. And that I don't know if it's ever going to get any better. And I start to lose hope. And so I think what our journey is, is for is to go, A, we're not trying to judge anybody and, and say that, man, my journey was tougher than yours. So get up and dust yourself off and go on. No, it's like, okay, this is as hard as it gets for you. And this is as tough as it's been. And, and I can relate and I can understand and I can you know, sit here and empathize with that. But more importantly, I just want you to have hope that this is not where it's going to end, that there is something else on the other side of the mountain. And you got to just keep climbing. You got to just keep pushing. You got to keep looking for where that is. And as I said, you've helped me with that. You know, as we've gotten through so many different struggles, that doesn't mean the next one's going to be easy, right? The next one's still a struggle and it's still tough to get up to the top of the mountain, but you believe that you're going to get there. And we try to encourage other people that they can get there as well, you know, and then any kind of support that we can give them along the way. But I think that's what it's all about is never diminish somebody else's journey. And then always try to be a sense of hope, you know, in whatever way that is to encourage them that this is not where it ends. This is not, you know, what what is going to end up defining you, even though it sure feels like that in the moment. It sure feels like, man, I'm in the midst of the cloud and I do not see anything else outside this cloud right now. You know, we need to find people or we need to be people that can help people and go, okay, I know you can't see it, but but I'm outside this cloud and I know what's outside this cloud. So just keep walking through it and keep believing that you're going to get to the other side we need people in our lives like that, uh, no matter what we've been through and no matter where we find ourselves right now. Diane, Curtis talked about his faith, marriage, family, and he's okay with each of these growing and changing. Is this the key to good mental health? Absolutely, Corey. The fact that, first of all, he's got this really critical social support. He has a strong faith, and that that helps to build him up. It gives him the confidence and, and supports his resilience in the ups and downs of life. But that last piece that you asked about, the, the growing and the changing that Kurt really spoke so eloquently about— That's life. Things change. And his ability to go with that change, to accept that change, to ride those changes and to adapt himself, absolutely critical to maintain his his mental health. But something about that question raised the point for me. People often talk interchangeably about mental health and mental illness. And just to take a moment to talk about how those are different, mental health is really on a spectrum. We all have physical health, but sometimes we get a cold, so our physical health isn't as good. We also have mental health. Sometimes our mental health is awesome. Sometimes we're a little stressed out. We really don't want to get into the functionally impaired and and crisis where you're you have a diagnosis and you're really struggling to do the the things that you want to do every day. So, just like physical health is kind of on a spectrum, better or worse, Your mental health is as well. We all have mental health, however. We all don't have mental illness. Some people have a mental illness and some people don't. And that's different than mental health. What if you have tumbleweed and a hamster on a wheel inside your brain? Because that's me. Uh, Here's a question I want to ask you. If you're a parent, how do we support our family's mental health? 
That's a great question, Corey, because I think it's an everyday experience as parents or as adults who are supporting young people to find their passion and success at life. And I think the most critical thing we can do to help to create healthy adults is to provide them with a stable, loving, safe home. That's first and foremost, number one. Then the number two side of it, and there's many number twos, okay, number one is that, and number two is making sure that they know that you're going to screw up, you're going to make mistakes, life has its ups and downs, sometimes you don't come first, sometimes you come last, and building that resilience in them every day, helping them to weather those storms and learn that, you know, tomorrow's going to be different, change is going to happen, the only person that you're in charge of is you. Those are our gifts that we can help to reinforce every single day. And creating that warm, safe, loving environment, respectful environment, encouraging environment, that's a lot of work. Going back to Kurt's experiences, he deals with things openly with his family and is teaching his kids how to be resilient. And I think he's got a pretty great foundation there. If you see someone struggling and you aren't sure about what's going on with them, what can you do? Well, I'll put it back to you for a minute, Corey, because you've struggled at different times. What's been most meaningful to you when you've been struggling? What's meant the most to you when people have reached out? For me, non-judgment. That's a big one. I had some strange thoughts going through my head. And I think what's important is just continue to have open dialogue. Like I said, no judgment is very important to me. Also, one of the strangest things that, I wouldn't say strange, but one of the hardest things were when people would tell me how great my life was. What, what's wrong with you? Your life is great. You just drank out of the Stanley Cup. You got a silver medal from the Olympics. It actually made me feel worse. It buried me even further because you're right. Why should I feel this way? But that's a judgment, isn't it? That's someone it is putting, judgment. putting judgment on you. So what I'm hearing is not judging, having an open conversation or an open dialogue with you. And I would, I would guess saying, how can I help? Encouraging that there is help out there and that if you're available to it, go get it. I finished the interview as I like to do with three quick questions. What would you tell your 15-year-old self? What was your greatest accomplishment? And finally, who's your hero? The advice I would give my 15-year-old self um, is probably, it's, it's a phrase that we use in our house a lot, but never let your circumstances define you. Oftentimes in my journey, um, I got hung up with my circumstances and I allowed that to be you know, what, what shaped my mindset in certain situations. And I think that's an easy thing for people to do is go, oh man, but I'm here and this is it. And this is the end of the game. And oh my gosh, is that, you know, ultimately I would tell myself that. So when I was going through all those moments uh, to be reminded of, hey, this is not going to define you. Working in a grocery store is not going to define you. Sitting on the bench is not going to define you, right? Getting cut by the, you know, the Packers is not going to define you. And I would say it on the flip side too. Being a Super Bowl MVP is not going to define you. Being benched again after that is not going to define you. That we're defined by who we are and who we want to be, not by what our circumstances are. So that would be the piece of advice I would give uh, myself if I was 15. 
greatest accomplishments. Uh, I'll give you two, one on the field and one off. And so off the field, I think my greatest accomplishment is just my marriage, you know, and being able to do 24 years and being in love with, with my wife and, and wanting to wake up every day. We just celebrated our 24th wedding anniversary. And my wife asked me, okay, what's your favorite part of our relationship and all of that? And I said, the favorite part of my relationship is I wake up every day at peace, knowing that I get to live another day with the person that I love the most, that I enjoy the most. I have peace in knowing that I'm with the right person and you know we're going to make it through whatever whatever is thrown at us. And so that to me, I think is a great accomplishment is when you can find the right person and you can figure out in your relationship together how to do it right so you look forward to the next day. On the field, obviously, you know, you, you would say, you know, winning a Super Bowl is a huge accomplishment because we all, you know, seek after that. But I would probably say my greatest accomplishment was later in my career when I went to Arizona is I, you know, been successful, but then I had been benched by two different teams, been cut by a team and, and nobody expected anything from me. I went to an organization that was the losingest franchise in the last 50 years of the NFL. And there was no expectation for either of us. You know, you guys can wallow away together in the desert. And, uh, you know, we were able to get to a Super Bowl and be within, you know, just a couple of minutes of winning a Super Bowl. But it changed the complexion of, of what that organization, it changed the culture and how people looked at that organization. And that's one of my crowning accomplishments, because I believe that's what life is all about. It's, uh, it's about you know, getting people to believe something about themselves and who they are in a different way than they did before. And that season really helped to change the perception that different people and the organization and people on the outside of the organization had. That to me is what I want life to be is I want to help my kids to believe what they can be and who they can be regardless of where they're at. Uh, tell us about your foundations, everything you got going, um, how we can reach you, what we can, all that good stuff. Yeah. Okay. So we got a couple of different foundations. I started a foundation called the First Things First Foundation when I was playing kind of my player foundation to really just get connected in the community. We just do a variety of different things that kind of connected with us, you know, and so with our son being injured, uh, you know, every year we take Make-A-Wish families with us to Disney World for a week. And we spend a week with them and build relationships. And that to me is what our foundation is all about, is that I love people that can financially help other people. But to me, I want to build relationships. And so ours is very much about doing different programs that help us to build relationships with people. So that's kind of our community-based foundation. And then as we talked a little bit about my son who had a traumatic brain injury and uh, he graduated high school and, and we really didn't know we didn't really know how to dream for our child. We have seven kids. We had no problem dreaming for six of our kids, what they can be and what life can look like and having kids and being the president and being a football star or, or, or teacher, lawyer, whatever it was. And then we have our son with the traumatic brain injury that we go, I, I don't know what the future is. I don't even know how to dream for this child of ours because we don't know what possibilities are out there. And we didn't want any other family to not be able to dream for their child or not have that kind of dream in their family. So we created a place called Treasure House, which, um, you know, where your treasure is, there also uh, your heart will be. It's a community living facility for young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities where they can, can live as independently and live with purpose and live with community, uh, even though they may not be able to do everything on their own. So uh, it's a supervised facility where they can be amongst their peers 
and they can dream and they can chase after whatever it is that they want to do in life. And so uh, our first ones here in Arizona is completely filled right now. We've got a waiting list. And so our goal is to be able to build treasure houses everywhere and to be able to give every family like ours the opportunity to dream differently than they've ever dreamed before. And so um, if anybody wants to help out in any way, KurtWarner.org uh, is how they can get involved with uh, the First Things First Foundation. TreasureHouse.org is how you can find out more about what we're doing with Treasure House. And uh, we're always just looking for people that are like-minded, that want to have an impact and impact lives. And we know that not everybody feels the same passion towards every cause, but our goal is to find people that are passionate about our cause and to uh, to take them alongside of us and to to change the world doing it. Kurt, you gave me props earlier for helping you, and I can't thank you enough for today because you gave me more than you could ever imagine. Thank you for sharing everything you shared. I'm just, uh, uh, I'm over the moon right now. And you know what? I love you, man. That's oh, uh, it's you, great to have a new friend and you know hear you talk about all this stuff because, man, did I learn a lot today, Diane. Well, I, I tell you what, I, I appreciate you too. I mean, I, not a lot of people are going to know how we connected, but ironically enough, through some struggles that my, you know, my kids are having, I simply just reached out to you through a friend and, you know, I can't say thanks enough for the way that you followed through and the way that you've been committed to, to helping me in so many different ways, because a lot of people can take a phone call and then kind of go on their way and, and, and say, you know, yeah, I'd like to help or whatever. I can't thank you enough for, you know, the commitment that you've made, you know, to, to our family and to helping people get better and to do that. So, I am indebted to you. This was uh, this was easy. This was fun. I appreciate you having me on because I know it'll impact some people. But I can't thank you enough for uh, you know for stepping up the way that you did. And gosh, we've only really been in contact for what a month, uh, <laughs> but I feel like I, I, I know you very well, and I look forward to the years to come getting to know you even better. Thank you so much, Kurt, for your time, your openness, uh, and honestly, I'm grateful for your time and and for the person you are. Thank you. Well, that, my pleasure. Thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Let's do this again sometime.